I thought when I was younger that if I wasn't doing all of these crazy skincare hacks and everything that I wasn't accurately taking care of myself. And it gave me a really skewed image of my life and how my mental health was. Welcome to Respect, Relate, Connect, the official podcast for Living Room Conversations, a nonprofit organization focused on building understanding and bringing people together through guided conversations since 2010. Welcome to this month's episode of Respect, Relate, Connect, the official podcast for Living Room Conversations. I'm your host, Stuart Fletcher. With the new school year underway, we wanted to talk about mental health issues facing youth. Our organization, Living Room Conversations, provides hundreds of conversation guides across a wide array of topics, including several about mental health. The guide that we will be using for this conversation is the Mental Health for Youth Guide, found at livingroomconversations.org. So I invite any listeners to follow along and consider your own answers to the questions that we'll be discussing today. Again, livingroomconversations.org, that's where you can find all of our guides about just about any topic. So with me today for this conversation are my three guests, Aubrey Miller, Maria Jose uh, Curry, I almost said Curie, Curry, and Rose Fletcher. Aubrey has been an educator for 17 years. 16 of those years were spent in the New York City public school system. Her most recent position was teaching fourth through eighth grade art, health, and SEL classes in Midwood, Brooklyn. She is currently on sabbatical and back at school at Hunter College, taking studio art courses to continue her growth as both an educator and an artist. Maria is a mother to five kids, cares for numerous pets, and is a creative relational entrepreneur. Through her small business, she has fought for artisans and the viability of their art and culture across five states in Mexico, ranging from textiles to jewelry to pottery. Rose is a high school junior who is currently involved in dance, musical theater, and part-time work at Cinemark. She also happens to be my younger sister. I don't know how that worked out. What are the odds? So to start off, we're going to do a quick intro for each of us. So I'm going to have you go around and each answer these questions. We're going to say your name again, just so the listeners can attach your name to your voice. So your name, where you live, and what you hope to get out of this conversation. And I'll go first, and then we'll go Maria, and then Aubrey, and then Rose. And that's kind of the cycle that we're going to follow throughout the whole conversation today. So like I said, my name is Stuart Fletcher. I live in Provo, Utah. I go to Brigham Young University. And I hope to get out of this conversation a better understanding of what I can do to help individuals from basically any age, but specifically young adults, how do I, how I can help them with their mental health without seeming pushy or condescending or kind of jumping my bounds. I want to be able to find a nice, comfortable, relatable way to help people. I'm Maria Curry. I live in New Braunfels, Texas. 
And I think I'm hoping to just get a more wide view of how people view mental health, um, how they engage with it in other people. Um, and then also how kids are seeing it these days, because it's very different from when I was in high school. I feel like when we had challenges with mental health, it was very much something you kept to yourself, although it affected everything. And so I appreciate how now it's um, way more of a topic of conversation. So I'm interested to see how other people engage that. And I'm Aubrey Miller. Um, I live in Brooklyn, New York, and um, I hope to get out of this um, as Maria said to like a, a wider perspective of what other people are thinking. Um, I have been a social emotional learning teacher. Um, so I'm kind of hitting and health teacher and I hit um, mental health straight on both in what I teach and then hearing from the students. And we do talks like this quite a bit. Um, but I think this is an interesting um, group of people to have together. It's not just teacher and student. So I'm happy to hear from all these different people about the same topic and um, see how it compares to what I have experienced and what I've seen and how maybe it's different. I'm Rose Fletcher. I live in American Fork, Utah. Um, I think I'm mainly just hoping to be able to convey mental health as like a representative of teenagers. I'm hoping to be able to convey it correctly and explain it well, and also be able to connect better with people who aren't my age and how they view mental health and how it was for them when they were growing up. Perfect. Thank you so much. So we are going to go into the conversation agreements. If you guys have the guide at hand, you can read along with me. I'm going to read all six of these out. And these are kind of our rules for fruitful conversations. These are have been identified by dialogue experts as pain points for lots of conversations that get derailed. And so we're hoping that these keep us in line. And if at any point you feel like one of us is breaking a conversation agreement, we can do like a little timeout and we can rewind and we can make sure that we're back on track. So the conversation agreements go like this. Number one. Be curious and listen to understand. Show respect and suspend judgment. Note any common ground as well as any differences. Be authentic and welcome that from others. Be purposeful and to the point. Own and guide the conversation. Now, all six of those, we are going to move forward and we're going to try to agree on. And I invite the listeners to think of one of those that they want to focus on during this conversation as well. One of those that maybe is a little bit harder for you specifically to make sure that we are elevating the quality of conversations across the board. So if you'll scroll further down in our conversation, you'll see question rounds and we are each going to take turns answering some questions and we'll each get our moment to I can hold the limelight. And then eventually we're going to open up into a more free form conversation pattern. So round one is another get to know you round. Each participant can take one to two minutes to answer one of these questions. What are your hopes and concerns for your family, community, and or the country? What would your best friend say about who you are? What sense of purpose, mission, or duty guides you in your life? So I'll go first, and then we'll go Maria and Aubrey and Rose in that same rotation. The one that jumped out to me today is what would your best friend say about who you are? 
I think this is an interesting question because it's not necessarily what I would say, but it's somebody, a confidant, a loved one, what they would say about me. And I would hope that my best friend would say that I'm an honest person, that I, I put empathy and listening before mo- basically anything else. And that I am desperately trying every day to be a better person, sometimes failing, but I'm at least going in that right direction. The one that stood out to me was the last one, because it's just something that as you go through different businesses, you kind of have to make make sure you're staying true to yourself, right? So I am constantly checking in, like what's driving me. Um, So it was freshly on my mind. And I think the thing that I can say confidently that kind of fuels me um, and guides my decisions are others, um, making sure I'm following the relationships that I have, caring for those, nurturing those, um, fighting for justice. So making sure that those that are often overlooked are not lost um, and maintaining a sense of growth. So, you know, in day-to-day life, it's yes, me personally, but am I helping other people grow and become better as well? Like, I don't just want to maintain like a, a stagnant life, but am I and creating an environment of growth. Yeah, I chose the third one as well. Um, What sense of purpose, mission, duty guides you in your life? Um, I guess it felt relevant to me because I'm coming here as a teacher um, because it's something that I, the reason I became an educator and then it's something that I try to stick with always um, in every interaction I have, it, it's like a very common thing that people say, but be the change you want to see. Right. So like I, as an educator, I always loved school. Um, and, or before I was an educator, I always loved school. And, but I also saw that there were flaws and there were things that I wanted to change. So that was an easy, um, way for me to figure out my career path. Um, it was really direct. Um, and then it's just, I, try to have an awareness of, you know, people around me as well. Um, when in daily interactions, whether that be people on the street in a store, um, kind of looking out for others and trying to like change things where I feel like I can step in and be of service in some way to people. The third one also really stood out to me. I think that the, the sort of purpose that guides my life, at least at the moment is the desire to both be genuine and surround myself with genuine people. And me and one of my brothers talk about this a lot, but the like genuineness that we, and well, I strive for is not just speaking everything that comes to my mind, but it's finding a genuine way to be a happy and good person. Um, And so the driving force of my life right now is to surround myself with people who also value genuineness so that we can all learn to grow accurately and well together. I would say that those are all really powerful and oddly cohesive missions in life that all we can work together on all of those. So round two will be our major question round. And if I can get one participant to read the paragraph all the way up at the top of the guide under the little picture, 
as youth, our daily life mainly revolves around growing our mind, be it through school or from our relationships in preparation for adulthood. However, when 50% of all eventual mental health illnesses start at age 14, teenagers can feel that time is actually spent struggling with their minds and the changing world around them. From the pressures of social media, being successful in school, disagreeing with loved ones around the direction of our lives, or accessing mental health services. Um, and the disruption caused by COVID-19 on schooling and interpersonal interactions. We have a lot to deal with. While our school gym classes have stressed the importance of physical health, mental health has often been pushed to the side, leading some to feel lost navigating this new terrain. In this conversation, we invite you to step back from the pressures you may have in your life, connect with others around how mental health impacts each of you, and find strength in the thoughts you share. Perfect. You could hear that um, professional theater training coming through. <laughs> So with these questions that we're going to evaluate, we can each have two minutes to answer one of the following questions. And then once all four of us have had a chance to answer one, we'll open it up and we can respond to what somebody else said. We can jump to a new question. We can analyze things that aren't directly outlined in the guide. But this gives us a framework to move forward with this conversation. So again, I'm going to read out all these questions for our listeners and then think about which question you want to answer. And we'll go back to that original order. First question is, how do religion, culture, family, or parts of your identity influence how you think about mental health and mental health interventions? What influence or impact does social media have on you? Do you use or avoid it? What do you like and or dislike about social media? How do you care for or consider your mental or emotional health? What does self-care look like for you? And is there anything you want to change about it? Do you find yourself caring for or being affected by the mental and emotional health of others? What does that look like and what impact does it have on you? What hopes and concerns come to mind when considering your own transition to adulthood and independence associated with it? And obviously, these questions are all tailored towards young adults, youth specifically. But I want each of us to answer from our own perspective, either talking about the young adults in our life or how we were when we were young adults. And Rose, as the resident teenager you can speak from your own experience. So the question that jumped out to me first is how do you care for or consider your mental or emotional health? What does self-care look like for you? I think for a long time in my own life, self-care was kind of about selfishness. When I was like, oh, it's a if I have to do self-care, that means I should only do what I want to do. It means that I should, you know, watch guilty pleasure movies or listen to my favorite music or eat comfort foods because I that's how I understood it to mean. But the older I've gotten, the more I realize that self-care, it is those things and it can be those things. There's nothing wrong with that. But for me, sometimes I feel the most whole and rejuvenated and relaxed when I take myself out of my day to day, if I take myself out of my own desires and I either I go help somebody else or I really engage 
with somebody with a story that somebody is telling me or with somebody else's day or a big one will be, I'll go out and I'll, I've started doing this a lot more now that the weather was nice and it's getting colder here, but I will go out and I'll take a walk and I'll look for any opportunity to talk to somebody walking by or to pick up trash that I see on the street or just to marvel at the really pretty city that I get to live in. That way my self-care is less about indulgence and more about turning outward and trying to find ways to build connections rather than just solidify my own like, desires inside myself. That's really good. Um, I like that outward focus because it does help to kind of get outside of your, your perspective and all that stuff. Um, I was actually going to answer the same question. Um, I think especially in motherhood, it's hard to like take care of yourself, especially at the beginning when they're little and it fluctuates so much. So one of the things that helped me was to understand that my self-care and my own awareness about my mental health comes in seasons. Um, so understanding that everything is seasonal, but even that, so there may be a season when I'm really good about how I take care of myself. There may be a season when it looks like something I never expected would be good for me, you know, but understanding that these things, maybe they're cyclical, maybe it's just a season will end and a new one is, you know, entirely new and could last years and years and years. But understanding that really helped me because when I would lose a thing that I thought was helping me, um, just because of time or whatever was going on in life. I think it helped me not to mourn it and not to get into a place where it was like, okay, now what am I going to do? Instead, it was like, great. Well, what fits my life right now? What can I do with what I have, with what's around me, with who is around me that can help me get back into that place of taking care of myself? Even if it was just a new gym, you know, like whatever it was in that phase or season. Um, but really understanding that it is, it can be cyclical. It can be seasonal. Well, I was going to answer something else, but I think this is really interesting. And I have something totally different to say about self-care. So I'm going to pick that one too. All right. Um, yeah. So I was like thinking about it from when I was younger and um, I forget how old Rose said she was, but a junior, right? So that's like 16, 17. Like when I was young, self-care to me was busy. Like I needed to be busy. I needed to do be, I was in all the sports and all the clubs and it like self-care was about like this like outward thing of like going to practice and running the mile in a certain amount of time. Like these achievement kind of based things, like that doesn't even sound like self-care because I feel like that's such a new term. And it's not something that like when I was in, in high school was something that we really even thought about or talked about um, but that was like the things that made me feel good and made me feel whole and made me feel part of a group and connected um, and as I get older it has changed a lot I feel like that busyness kind of kept me away from understanding things internally um, and so stillness has been something that I've had to try to like understand as I've gotten older in terms of self-care that like that maybe filling all your time and keeping busy while it does, you know, improve you in certain ways, it doesn't help you understand yourself the way that like stillness can. So um, I feel like that has been a major transition for me from going from being a young person to an older person is realizing that 
sometimes it is going to be like you were saying the seasons. Um, sometimes it's movement and sometimes it's stillness. Sometimes it's about like sitting in a feeling and like, just let like writing it out and, um, or journaling or, you know, these different things that, um, so it's been like a major shift for me across my lifespan of understanding what self-care is. And I'm sure it'll evolve, you know, like that's the thing is like, when it doesn't work, you do have, you have to try the next thing. Like you were saying, I think that's really powerful. Um, but yeah, it changed a lot for me over time. I was actually also going to answer another question, but I got stopped <laughs> while we were talking. With that same thing of self-care being like keeping yourself busy, I definitely thought that last year. I was doing show after show, pushing myself, honors classes, like job, the whole shebang, all of it. And it got to the point where I was like, I was so proud of myself for all these things that I had accomplished, but I had lost sight of my bare necessities where like I was barely going to school my grades were suffering I had like I was awful with like regular meals I was never drinking water I wasn't getting enough sleep but I was so proud of myself for being like innovative enough to self-destruct um but now self-care really looks like focusing on basics in order to get to the point that you can push yourself so I worked on this all summer is I created routines and my brain is very routine. I need to be in routines. And so I have a skincare routine and I have a wake up routine. I get up at the same time every day, like all these kinds of things. I drink water at this time. I eat my meals at this time. And once I had set in stone that routine in my brain, I was able to start adding things to my roster. So now I've gone from last year where I had 130 absences to this year where I've missed one day so far and it was because I was sick um and through all of those setting routines and establishing my own mental and physical boundaries with things I am now I'm in two shows I work two jobs I I do a lot of stuff and it's such a stark difference from last year when I was doing less but I felt like I was carrying more I think self-care is really focusing on your bare necessities and using that not as a way to lean back like rest on your laurels but as a way to keep pushing yourself forward me and one of my really good friends have started telling each other this I don't know if it's really a saying it's more of a motto that relaxation carries the same weight as work is you can't have work without relaxation and you can't relax without working um and I'm sorry, I'm talking for a really long time. But um, I also I try to think of my life as like the Yerkes Dodson curve of um, what's it Pro productivity, um, where I try to keep myself productive, but not overly stressed. And I think a lot of self care, for me, at least is just stress regulation and bare necessities being taken care of. Rose is much wiser than I was when I was a junior in high school. <laughs> That's why I brought her on. So I want to ask this question along with the self-care topic from each of your different perspectives as a, as a mother and a teacher and a teen, do you think that the youth of today are actively choosing constructive self-care methods 
or do you think they maybe trend towards destructive? Well, that's interesting. Um, I think, especially with the rise of social media, there's definitely a heightened awareness about um, self-care because you have like all these tutorials on like skincare and like, like, you know, how to drink enough water throughout the, you know, all the challenges that come up. So there's like this like physical awareness, um, but at the same time, like it becomes consumerism. So like you said, like there's rest and all that stuff, but it isn't like a, there's a way to rest actively and there's a way to like rest where you're, it's not true rest. It's consuming or it's self-centered rest. And I think that, um, maintaining that kind of growth mindset, even in your rest is important. So I don't know about like, it's, it must be like a, um, kid to kid basis, you know, like it just depends on their environment. Like who are they in a challenging environment with a good community around them? Or are they trying to escape that? Is their environment so toxic that they're trying to just shut it off? Um, I think that would determine a lot of how they actually self-regulate when they're in those busy seasons or when they're trying to actually take care of themselves, because sometimes even that can, you know, too much of something could actually be harmful. So it's, it's a very interesting topic. I haven't actually thought of it that way. So the the last, last year I taught um, middle school, I saw a range of things that they would say were, was self-care, you know, and some of it was that lug sound bitey. Oh, I saw that if I take care of my skin, right. Or, um, they always had those gigantic water bottles to your point, right? Like these, like they're lugging around like gallons of water. Yeah. Like that. Exactly. And mostly I thought they just wanted to get out of class and go to the bathroom, but you know, that's another thing, but um, yeah, the social media stuff. So that was what I was going to answer the first time around whenever we would talk about it in our circles in our social emotional learning circles, you know, it's just, I would pose a question and we would like talk about it. When we talked about social media, I think some kids really find community in it. Like, honestly, like, I think it's a way for them to connect with people that aren't in their immediate environment that they have commonalities with. And in that way, I think that social media can be good. But there's a lot of back channeling that goes on too, you know, and there's a lot of um, destructive use of that. You know, there's bullying, there's um, like making snarky comments on things. And and that I saw too. So it, that one's a hard one. You know, I would never suggest taking it away from kids. I think it was a saving grace in the pandemic, but it also like made them dependent, I think, in a lot of ways on, you know, devices. So it's hard to say. I mean, yeah. And I think to the modeling that what I would notice a lot with my students was the modeling that they were getting of self-care at home mattered. Right. So if like what they were seeing and maybe in their friend groups as well, their peers, like the people closest to them, what they were doing, because we learn so much more from watching behaviors rather than like someone telling you what to do. If they had a good role model that was doing things that that was um, that was productive and not destructive in terms of self-care, I think that they they had a better grasp on it. But yeah, it's a it's a complicated question and it's, it is subjective, you know, from kid to kid, it would be different. It, it's like something you would need them to evaluate themselves and maybe like evaluate again later. Like, did this actually help you? Or was this just like a gimmick that you, you tried, you know, um, it's an interesting question to, that now I want to, to kind of map across my, 
my year with my students. So I like that. This is one of my favorite topics. Um, I'm like bouncing in my seat. I just watched like a ton of video essays on this. I read a lot of books on this kind of thing. Um, I think that our generation's connection to social media and that relation to self-care is really interesting. And I've definitely, I've seen a lot of it in my life. It's, they're almost inextricable is that you can't in your, in like my generation and in my mind, self-care is a social media trademark. And it's very like, I'm an influencer. I'm going to show you my self-care routine, like all that kind of thing. And I thought when I was younger, that if I wasn't doing all of these crazy skincare hacks and everything, that I wasn't accurately taking care of myself. And it gave me a really skewed image of my life and how my mental health was. And especially when you get into those seasonal pockets of just being sad and just losing your motivation and you can barely brush your teeth, doing a whole skincare routine is torture. And so it only made my seasonal depression worse is when I looked at my routines and I was saying, oh, I'm not taking care of myself. Um, but with that comes this also sort of dystopian view of self-care where our society has, well, at least our generation has massively romanticized being sad. And so I think I definitely did this. It's just this widespread need to be beautifully tragic. And it comes with all of these artists and these singers and these Instagram influencers. And it's just this need to not be well and to diagnose yourself with everything on the board and to prove to everyone how sick you are. And even though like the desire to be sick is kind of sickness itself, it's kind of affirms people's desire to be sad when they are no longer doing the romanticized version of self-care. And so when I'm not doing it, I can be like, oh, I'm not doing it because I'm massively depressed and my life is awful. When in reality, I just don't feel like doing a 90 step self-care routine. It's just this really interesting relationship that I think about a lot. I listen to this comedian. I wish I could remember every video and book and anything I'd ever read, but I have no idea who he was. But he was saying, it's like the worst part about millennials and Gen Z, he's a millennial, he's speaking as one. He says, the worst part is that we all know what's wrong with us. Like we all went to the therapist, we all got diagnosed with anxiety and depression and whatever it is. And we use that as a shield to not have to change because he said, and it was like a really poignant joke. He delivered it in a funnier way than I did, but he, it really did strike me where I, I was like, it's weirdly true in a way that I've seen this in my own life. I had very debilitating social anxiety for a while, for a couple of years. And by knowing that fact, it gave me an out to not have to deal with it. Because I could just be like, oh, well, the doctor told me I had social anxiety. So I actually don't have to fix this. As opposed to like if a doctor told me, which I, they have, that I have asthma, I would be like, oh, I have to start taking my inhaler. Instead of just being like, oh, well, I have asthma, so I don't have to breathe. So what do you, what do you guys think about that? 
Wow. That's kind of a like loaded little package of questions there. Cause thinking I'm thinking of it from several different perspectives, like me as a kid, I was really shy. And I think as an coming up from an immigrant family, I wasn't actually given the opportunity to function out of my shyness because I was the only one in my immediate family that spoke English. So it was like, Hey, go talk to that person. You know, my parents would like, Hey, go ask them for this. And so like, it's, it's like an inner panic, but like, all right, like I learned how to overcome this thing. Um, and I realized with, I have one, one of my kids is very shy as well. And I noticed the other day how I was like coddling her when like, I wasn't given that same opportunity as a kid and it helped me, but like nowadays it's, you know, I want to be so much more aware and like, don't want to impose some of the same, like emotional trauma, perhaps if you want to use that word. But, um, at the same time, like my inability to like push her perhaps won't, won't help her develop that part that she needs, you know, to function fully. Cause there may be something in her that's just not uh, confident in a moment in a certain situation. So if I can push her in that, even if it's just that one, you know, it may give her confidence for others. And it doesn't mean that every moment I would be like, you're the one that's going to go and do the thing. But I just, it, it was eye opening to me to see it that way. Um, so this is, this is interesting because at the same time, like I understand this, like everybody's self-diagnosed as well. Like I've heard so many times everybody being like, well, no, I'm, I'm neurodivergent. And like the spectrum on that is so huge, but it's become such a, like, um, like a blanket as well of like kind of an excuse. And I feel like sometimes I've heard kids in my older daughter's grade as well saying, well, no, I have anxiety. And so my daughter will then say, she doesn't do this because she's anxious. And so like, wait, but that isn't like a reason it's like, okay, how can we help you do this thing? You know, I feel like there has to be a little more of a conversation for like, well, now what versus that's just the way that it is, or even just like a resignation to be that, because I think, um, we tend to carry it alongside like a thing that we feed, you know, versus a thing that we, um, have to handle, but not like a pet. I don't know. There, there has to be like some form of handling it differently. I'm thinking about it from like a health perspective and how I teach mental health and how like then piggybacking off of that into the social emotional learning that we do about it. Having a diagnosis is good in that it's an ex. I always like to say it this way. It's an explanation, not an excuse, right? So if you're feeling bad, this might explain why this is happening, but it doesn't excuse you from behaving in X, Y, and Z way like a functional person, right? So if you can't function, what can you do? You can ask for help. That's number one, right? If it, if, if, if whatever you're feeling is too big and it feels insurmountable, then you ask for help. Now, how do you know it's too big and it's insurmountable and you need help? Well, that's when you consult your nervous system, right? So it's like understanding the way that your brain works and how it can be overridden by fear or uh, frustration or whatever emotion hijacks you from being able to participate in life in a certain way. So can you learn the skills of mindfulness of, you know, these different things that can help you center yourself? Now, if you've tried all of those and it's not working, then we think, okay, this is, this is impairing me beyond 
what I can do for myself. And it, but it always comes back to asking for help. Right. So, um, and that's like, that was kind of the rhetoric that went on in my health class because we studied many different kinds of, um, mental illnesses. And it was always like, these are the symptoms, right? And like all the kids are like, yeah, I feel like that. Of course. Yeah. I feel like that. I was like, yeah, I do too. But, um, if it's getting to a point where it's too much, like then who do you talk to about it? And then where do you go from there? Right. So, um, yeah, I think it's this process, you know, and I think that really easy way of like, that's an explanation on an excuse, I think is really helpful for, um, no, not taking the out of not participating or not coming to school or, you know, not trying to make a friend or, you know, whatever it is doing to inhibit you from living your life the way you want to. Um, and then going from there. On kind of the flip side of this as like the representative teenager, I, I was in a really bad car accident a couple of years back and I bruised the frontal lobe of my brain. Um, which really inhibited my ability to do a lot of things. Um, and it gave me a lot of behavioral issues. Not like I wasn't committing crimes. Um, more of like I, <laughs> I found it really hard to focus on things. And I found it really hard to remember things like short term. Deadlines were a nightmare. Just like all of these awful things with a very tangible reason that I could latch on to. And so because of this very tangible reason, I found myself not working as hard. And so I would go into class and I would do what I wanted and then I wouldn't get something done. And I'd be like, oh, I was in a car accident. Don't worry about it. Like, it's not your problem. It's mine. Um, and I piggybacked off this for a while. And I suddenly had this realization one day, this, this year actually, uh, last school year, um, where I realized that I wasn't growing because I was allowing myself to be like right on the piggyback of this injury that I had. And I wasn't growing physically. I wasn't growing emotionally. I wasn't growing mentally. And I realized that there was a lot of opportunities that I'd been missing and a lot of goals that I hadn't been reaching. And I wasn't up to the standard that I wanted to be. And so I have over the past couple of months been trying to shift that mindset into this isn't a reason. Yeah. Like this isn't a reason not to do this thing. This is a reason to prove people that even though you have this thing that has happened to you, you can still be better than anyone thinks you can. It's like, I want to prove that I'm stronger than my, injury and that my injury is not all of me. One of the things that I want to ask you guys is what can we actually do? Like in our different roles in our different communities, what can we do to ensure that a, a problem like Rose was outlining doesn't define a kid's life or that an explanation doesn't become an excuse for the, the teenagers in our lives. Interesting. Yeah. Um, well, I'll go back to like my very first thing I answered about like what kind of uh, gives me purpose or, you know, mission and all that. And it's others and like relationships. So I think it's having that relationship prioritized and like making sure that there's open dialogue. Um, 
and making sure that like the environment that you are creating is one where kids feel safe to, to talk and to share whether it's a failure or a win, whatever it is, but you kind of see even like a very candid conversation that isn't like, okay, let's sit down and see how you're doing. Like in those moments, you can see where somebody's at just by their posture, by their willingness to share or unwillingness to share, like all of those things matter. Um, but if there isn't an open line of communication and if there isn't a focus on who are you, uh, let me get to know you, any of that, then, um, well, it is very isolating for teens and they just go back out into their world of being teens and, you know, who, who knows what they're internalizing that they aren't able to share somewhere else outside of their perspective, like you said earlier about um, getting outside of your world and not helping you. But I think for teens, especially like being able to um, either look back at their family or look forward and be future oriented about who they want to be later. Um, but getting the other perspective is very important. I think um, active listening is profound. I think when we um, give people time and space to say what they need to say, um, that being said, sometimes words are hard. Um, and that's where as an educator, uh, I think I'm lucky to have the opportunity to create a space for art because that is a place where expression can come in a, more forms than just the verbal, like I'm telling you how I feel. Um, so I think, you know, as an educator, it's always listen more than you talk, find out, find accessibility for everyone. So if verbaliz verbalization is not, does not feel comfortable for someone, like how else can they tell you how they're feeling or what they need? Maybe they don't need your help. Maybe they just need a place to put that, those feelings and those expressions. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. I think it's sometimes, sometimes it's like, if we're always offering tools, it's too much, you know? Like sometimes it's just creating space um, and letting people, you know, come to you in their own way. Um, I actually, I had a conversation with a kind of a similar idea with my English teacher the other day, um, where I think it's become weirdly normalized to not want to succeed. It's become really normal to tell kids like, oh, you don't have to go to high school. Like you can drop out, just go work a fast food job. They'll, you're set for life. And it's just like, oh, you don't need to be excellent. You can just be okay. And I think we just need to reinstill the desire for excellence in teenagers. It's really stifling to be in an environment that doesn't encourage progress. And I think it's almost taught to us by these kind of cushions around us so that like, oh, your parents will take care of you for the rest of your life. Like, oh, you failed a test, but you can retake it as many times as you want. As like, and as nice as that is, it doesn't encourage people to grow because it gives them the space to be okay with failure. And it's really hard as someone who grew up in an environment that is like very strive for excellence. Like you're always wanting to be the best version of yourself better than the best version of yourself. It's hard to see so many people 
just have no motivation to be better. And it's hard to understand. And it's really frustrating. But I think the biggest thing is that we need to instill the desire for excellence in teenagers better through schooling and parenting and just social interaction and the media in general. And I don't know the best way to do that, but it's kind of a, just a broad blanket statement. It's just, we need to want to be better because without the want, there's never going to be the how. Can I ask you a follow-up question on that, Rose? Yeah. Do you think that desire to like, I don't know, just settle for mediocrity or just that kind of Gen Z nihilism that you see online, does that come from social media? Or what, what do you think is the origin of that? I don't really know. Um, I feel like it's almost, well, the way that I think about it is people who are excellent in their fields are consid- like considered a rarity and people who strive for excellence in their field are considered nerds. And so I think it kind of originated with probably the media, honestly, probably like movies and TV shows where the main character doesn't need to work hard, but the characters that work hard are the ones who are bullied, the ones like that get their lunch money stolen, the ones that are pushed up against lockers. Like, it's this odd idea that not wanting to conform to mediocrity is ridiculous. It's this comical idea of like, you think you can be better than all of us? nerd it's just this it's this hardwired instilled idea from I think both the ridicule of excellence and the normalization of mediocrity and that combined also with the fear of failure because we're all so afraid to fail that we don't try And there's no growing your comfort zone without a little discomfort sometimes. Yeah, for sure. And at least in my own life, I have definitely seen that that fear of failure for me comes from the idea that my whole life is broadcast. That like when you live so consistently on social media, you're afraid of doing something dumb or embarrassing because then it's going to be online forever. I wrote an essay about this last year, and I just I really like talking about things that I know stuff about. Um, <laughs> I think the biggest problem with social media is the idea of like a cringe culture. Is that like anyone who expresses desire or interest in anything that is not normal is automatically considered cringe or canceled or stupid or bigoted or ignorant, and it's this. It's just the suffocation of eccentricities. And that's kind of where you get bland societies. And that's where you get people who don't want to change. And that's where you get people who are okay with being dictated at like at its extremity. Um, but it's the idea that you're not allowed to step out of the mold especially not on social media because like if you do it in person it's like it's kind of okay but like if you do it on social media it's like you're automatically ostracized and it's such a fear of just like wanting to be small and little and be claustrophobic even if it's not who you want to be you can learn to want to conform it's kind of the idea of the cringe culture well we're we're 
getting close to our time here, but I was curious, uh, Maria or Aubrey, what thoughts you have about what Rose was saying? The aversion to discomfort is a very real problem. Um, And I see it not just in teens, but in adults too. The aversion to discomfort and this like complacency to just be where you are and not, you know, good. Like, I don't, I don't need more. I don't want to strive more. I want to read, <laughs> you know, like why better my mind? You know, this just, we're, we're good. I'll just scroll. Like, I don't, I don't need to read a book. I read headlines. So it's just, we're okay with that for some reason. Um, and that that's a definite problem. But then when you start scrolling, you start seeing these achievers and you start like getting insecure and then you're like, well, this is, you know, you just kind of start unwinding yourself and you're like, wait, 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 wait. You get down about yourself and it, it, that it probably stems from some of the same. In school recently, um, a lot of teachers will say like, okay, this is, we've like the one through four system, the mastery grading scale where like one is you're not doing what you're supposed to do. Two is fine. Three is the average and four is mastery and excellency. And every teacher tells you to strive for a three. Every teacher tells you that this is the baseline of what you have to do to pass. And I'm not going to tell you to do any more than that. And it's really weird because I'll be in classes where they're just like, yeah, you know, here's the basic rubric. Um, I want you to write around like one paragraph. But like, if you get like two sentences, that's fine. Like that's kind of the vibe of schooling recently. And it's super odd, especially for someone like me who I just, I love doing better than the best. So like in my English class, we're doing like um, annotations. We're annotating articles and then we're just talking about them like broad discussion. And my teacher told us, she was like, just circle any words you don't know and highlight any quotes. And that's all you need to annotate. And I was like, that's not annotating. What are you talking about? Um, and so I annotated my entire, like, I it's got to be like 30 pages. I annotated my entire 30 pages and wrote all my thoughts on the margins. And my teacher came up to me after class and she was like, thank you for doing what I actually want you guys to do. Because if I tell you what you want, what I want you guys to do, you won't do it because you'll be intimidated by the fact that you can't do it. And so it's just this weird, like they encourage you to do the bare bones of what is required instead of encouraging you to be better versions of yourself. Yeah, I can, I, I've seen it as well in, in schools. Um, I think it's a mixture of recovering from the pandemic and knowing that kids had, you know, a lot of challenges through that, whether it was, you know, home was tough or someone got sick or they got sick or, you know, so, you know, we were, we were instructed to kind of lay off, you know, like don't, don't lower your expectations because we're dealing with a different group of kids. Like they're different now. Right. And while I think that's true, I don't think it's giving credit to the resilience of people and namely like young people. Um, I think that I notice in my school, the teachers that expect the most are the ones that the kids respect the most. Right. So it's like, 
you don't want to lower expectations because that's almost like dumbing things down. Like you're like, oh, you're like, you can't handle this. Right. And so then the kids are like, all right, cool. I can't handle it. I'm not going to do it. Right. I don't know. That's what I'm guessing, Rose, is kind of how it goes. Yeah. Um, but I think that I, and I remember this as a teen, I just wanted to be like seen for my value and for my potential. And so if you're going to lower expectations for me, that tells you that tells me that you don't think I'm capable. Right. And then, and I, I, and then once I've lost respect, I lose motivation. Like I think it's a slippery slope. So I think making sure that our expectations are high but also building in like space for exceptions when things are not okay, because not everyone has the, the optimal situation or has recovered from the pandemic the way that some people have. But I think it's about keeping those expectations high, but, you know, having considerations for those who need exceptions. Excellency should be encouraged and exceptions should be allowed. You shouldn't expect an exception. You should expect excellency. And when exceptions come, incorporate them. It's also the other thing that I was thinking while you were talking is that this new energy in schools of just like go for the baseline, it really encourages students and it implements the idea that school is for the grade and not for the education. And I hate that so much. Because I love being smart. I love learning new words. I love knowing things. I just, I love being a smart person. And so when I'm told that the only value to my intelligence is getting an A on a test, it makes me feel a little silly for wanting to be smart. Right now, I have decided to read Crime and Punishment just for fun. Um, you know, as normal people do. Um, <laughs> and it's, sort of silly in school is that I'll go and I'll sit in classes when I'm not doing anything and I'll be reading my book and I'll be annotating it and I'm having a grand old time and people ask me like oh what class are you reading that for I'm like oh I'm not allowed to want to be smart of my own volition I have to want to learn to get a good grade on something it's just weird it, it really encourages students to not crave intelligence. It teaches students to try and get by by doing the least possible. Yeah, that's that's a hard thing that even when I was going to high school was a frustration for me. You can tell Rose and I were raised in the same household because we have very similar opinions about lots of things. But I, I appreciate all of the point of views that you guys have brought. Honestly, the normal, a normal living room conversation is 90 minutes, but we shorten it to about an hour for the podcast just because of listening time and also your guys' time. But I, I wish I have 30 more minutes to have this conversation. It's, it's very engaging and interesting to me. But we're going we're gonna to move to round three, which is our reflecting on the conversation round. And there are four questions here, and it's kind of similar to before. We'll, we will each get two minutes to answer one of these four questions. And I'm going to read them out here. What was the most meaningful slash valuable thing to you in this living room conversation? 
what learning, new understanding, or common ground was found on the topic? How has this conversation changed your perception of anyone in this group? Is there a next step you would like to take based upon the conversation? So the question that I'm going to answer is what was most meaningful slash valuable to you? And it, it was, it's a mixture of what everyone kind of brought up, but especially what Aubrey and Rose were just talking about there at the end about how, if you lower expectation, you make people feel less valuable. And if you want, especially young adults and teens who are struggling with identity and with these, these big problems of who am I going to be? What's going to define my life? What values do I want to take into adulthood? And you're told at that age that it's okay to be mediocre and that you shouldn't want to want, you know, like you shouldn't strive. Then I can understand why lots of people would develop this kind of this. I call it Gen Z nihilism. It's a very common thing nowadays where, Lots of Gen Z people just think, well, the world is over. It's okay. We can just be done. Or like, well, this doesn't have any meaning. Everything is a farce. And that can lead to and is a fruit of kind of in a cyclical way. It can lead to and it's a fruit of lots of mental health issues that Gen Z is facing. And so that was interesting for me to to consider that sometimes raising expectations but allowing for um, allowing for understanding can make a big difference in young people's lives. So what learning, new understanding or common ground was found on the topic? I think I often think that I have kind of a um, unpopular opinion when it comes to uh, specifically the excellence point and discomfort. Like I talk about being uncomfortable all the time as like a, a point of growth. Um, so <laughs> my, my kids are just like familiar with like, no, just go be uncomfortable. I'm sorry. You know, like they, they just <laughs> hear that all the time. Um, and so I often am like, oh no, this is just like, no, none of my mom friends would, you know, relate with me on this, but it's good to hear it from other people, especially a teen who's going through school and saying, no, we're missing a level of excellence and striving because I think you are absolutely right. Um, and it, I'm a little bit of a demanding parent, not in this like, you know, hardcore way, but definitely in like, I want you to do your best. Like I expect you to do your best. Now, the best for my oldest may be different than the best for my nine-year-old, but that's not for them to see the scale. It's just for them to know what they're capable of. Um, and I think that the, them achieving their best does help them realize like, I don't know, I can do this. I am capable. Like I can overcome the thing that I thought was my best back there. Like I did even better. And so all of that plays into how they view themselves and then how they engage their mind, their peers, every complicated thing that might come their way as well. So the commonality in those things and realizing maybe it's not such a different opinion after all was helpful. Yeah, I think hearing um, from a teenager, not in a school setting, right? Like I'm often in a place where I'm trying to get them to open up and 
it's not comfortable. It doesn't feel safe. It doesn't feel, you know, like they can be completely honest with them because I give them grades, right? Um, not for social emotional learning for that. It's just like a, you know, we talk in circles about their lives and, but I think, um, yeah, it was really nice to hear the perspective of a young person on some of these ideas. Um, and it makes me think about what I'm doing in my classes, um, and how I can raise expectations, but give room for exceptions and understanding. Um, and I, I have to think more about that. Like, what does that look like if it's not, cause we are tied to the system of grades, right? So like, how do you, how do you get kids to take responsibility for their learning the way that Rose wants to take responsibility for her learning, right? Like, I don't know if that is something, if it's not coming from home, like, and I guess we're talking about intrinsic motivation, right? Like that's kind of like, why do, do people do what they do? But how can I lend, how can I be a, an adult that helps them find their potential, you know? Um, so yeah, I have more to think about. So I think I, what I took from this is, um, you know, every time you learn something new, it opens another door. So now I've got a new set of doors to think about things. So it's great to hear all of your ideas. Um, I think that um, the most meaningful thing to me is that um, it's really easy for our generation to assume that all adults are kind of our enemies. It is like, oh, there's the the grown people and then there's us and we're all alone on this little island and we're suffering and we're cold and life is meaningless. Um, but hearing from adults that my feelings and my thoughts are valid and not only valid, but agreed upon, it makes me feel a lot less alienated from my peers is that this is a, a normal thing. And it's, I'm glad that there are other people who think so and who also want change. Well, I thank you all for joining me today. I loved getting all the different perspectives in an ideal world. We would have hours and we'd have hundreds of teachers and hundreds of teens and parents and anybody in between to have an opinion and to weigh in. Cause I really do think that's how we progress. That's how we learn. And that's how we find commonalities. That's what we do at living room conversations. And we hope that you three and all the listeners will join us in having these conversations about basically anything. We have so many guides. If you enjoyed this conversation, you can literally have your very own by going to livingroomconversations.org, downloading this exact guide and bringing people together in your own life just to talk about this. And that's the power of our organization. All of our guides, all of our resources are free to use because of the donations of our listeners and our participants. We are a nonprofit and we rely heavily on donations. And so I invite you to go to our website to donate to livingroomconversations.org or to join our Patreon and you can get exclusive content on there. In fact, just this last month, we started a free tier on Patreon. I don't really know how that works, but you can go on and you can participate with our question of the week without having to pay anything. I invite all of you, the listeners, to follow us on Instagram 
and I guess it's X now. I keep saying Twitter, but I think it's officially X. You can follow us at Living Room Convo. You can go to our YouTube and our Facebook at Living Room Conversations. I appreciate you all being here. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is wonderful.